carbohydrates and I want to hurt somebody (sighs) if you go online and you read about the no sugar no carb flu that people get I am a walking example of that my body is screaming for a cookie somebody save a drowning man throw me a donut for all these years I've been saying The spirit's willing and the flesh is weak. Oh, man, is my flesh weak. Oh, this has been tough. So we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 
by way of introduction, let me say this. I don't know how many of you heard Bernie Sanders' comments this week. I don't know how many of you heard him say that Christianity was sort of a blight on the nation and that Christians needed to just be quiet and go away because he sees, as much of the world sees, they see Christianity as oppressive. They see Christianity as restrictive. I don't expect the world to understand genuine biblical Christianity. But if you do understand Christianity, and even if you don't, I'm here to say that Christianity is the only opportunity for genuine freedom you have in this lifetime. One fan clapping. There it was. Because if you really, truly, genuinely understand our depraved condition, if you understand our sinfulness, if you understand the holiness of God, if you understand the judgment to come, if you understand those things, then you understand how desperately you need a savior. And then too much of Christian religion will say you have to somehow earn that savior. Yes, he's willing to save you. Yes, he's willing to help you out and pay for your sin debt. But you've got to do something to obligate him. You've got to choose him. You've got to make him Lord and Savior. You've got to do something to obligate him to save you. And that is why the message of grace is so very important and why for all these years I've been pounding on grace, 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 because there is nothing you can do to obligate God to save you. There is nothing you can do to obligate Christ to pour out his blood for you or cover your sin debt. The simple reality is it is an act of grace on God's part that he sacrificed his son on your behalf. It's grace. And once you get a hold of grace, as we talked a lot about during the Law versus Grace series, once you get a hold of grace, then all of those legalistic standards that are such a vital part of modern religion don't have the authority and the power over you that they used to have. If you conceive of Christianity as a series of do's and don'ts, if you conceive of Christianity as a set of rules and standards that you've got to follow meticulously or else God's not going to save you because you failed in some place, then not only do you still not understand Christianity, but you have to live your whole life in fear because there's no way that you can live up to that kind of standard. My cardiologist told me last week to cut out the sugars and cut out the carbohydrates. And man, this is just so hard to do. My flesh is so rebellious. I went to the Smyrna Art Crawl Friday night. Every single room we walked into, we, Jennifer and I, she's got a picture of us. Don't look at it. Every room we walked in, there's tables of cookies and donuts and coffee. And oh, it was just, it was, it was horrible. Because I want to rebel. That's my nature. The minute the doctor says, eat like this, my flesh goes, I don't wanna. And the minute that God says, live like this, your flesh says, I don't wanna. And he gave a rule to Israel. He laid out rules. 
do these rules follow these rules follow these commandments then I will bless you and put you in your land and protect you from your enemies and I'll do all that all you have to do is follow my rules and Israel collectively for 1400 years replied I don't wanna we just don't want to do it God's way and so as a consequence God formed a new covenant whereby he brought people to himself through grace, through faith in the sufficient blood of his son and the finished work of his son on Calvary. And now by grace, we most naturally do the things that the law couldn't make us do. Now when we hear the things of God, our mind and our heart goes, I want to. I want to be God-pleasing. I want to live a life that is glorifying to my Savior. I, I want to do that. What the law couldn't do, grace can do. Well, that thinking, and the reason that I bring all that up in order to prepare for chapter 9 here of 2 Corinthians is because at this point, Paul is talking about giving, and we've been talking about it for the last two weeks because Paul talks about it for a couple of chapters. And I grew up in very, very legalistic church. The primary reason that I left the Lutheran church when I was in college was because I was teaching Sunday school for them and I was serving as an acolyte when the pastor was out of town. I was conducting the service and one of the elders would do the sermon. I I was just so gung-ho for the church and then they came by the house to bring my parents giving envelopes. You're nodding like you remember, yes. Giving envelopes. here. And can we ask what your commitment's going to be this year so that we can budget appropriately? And then they turned to me and said, here are your giving envelopes. And I rebelled and said, I don't want giving envelopes. I'm teaching your children I'm teaching Sunday school, I'm teaching vacation Bible school, I'm conducting services, I'm acting as an acolyte, that is all giving, and I am also going to include some money, but I'm not going to tell you what it's going to be and put it in your envelopes so that you can track me. And from that point forward, they did not let me teach Sunday school, or Bible school, or vacation Bible school, and, and I never did any of the acolyte work again, and I left that church. It was about money. It was always about money. When Tom and I were at the church out in California, it was always about money. It was about money, money, money. And that is how the vast majority of churches operate. They put you under compunction, they put you under pressure, they put you under guilt, and they tell you give. And what does your flesh say? I don't want to. Because you don't want to, not under that kind of compulsion. And so for 16 years now, here at GCA, we have exercised what we call grace giving, for lack of a better name. I just call it New Testament giving. I wrote a book about it called A Guide to New Covenant Giving because I wanted once and for all to free myself from all the traditions and the bondage and the pain and the oppression that most churches put on people in order to get money out of them. I think it's wrong. I think it's criminal. I think it should not happen. But here's what has happened in the last 16 years by freeing you all to give 
as Paul's going to say, according to how you purpose in your heart. As a consequence, for most of these years, we've been debt-free. For none of these years have we ever had a financial need so bad that I ever had to come in front of you and say, if you don't give right now, we have to shut the doors. We have to turn off the electricity. We can't make our bills. So grace-giving, for lack of a better word, grace-giving works. But what you're going to see is Paul is going to spell it out in this chapter. That that is how you're supposed to give. Just like everything else in Christianity, New Covenant Christianity, everything else is dictated by grace. I know grace churches that taught grace, grace and salvation, grace, grace, grace. But when it comes to giving, there seems to be very little grace. There's a whole lot of compunction and a whole lot of pressure and a whole lot of over-the-top budgets that somehow it's your obligation to fulfill. And you weren't there for the budget meeting when they decided on what the budget was going to be. But it's your job to pay up. I think that would be wonderful if I could pull that off. (laughs) If I could just come up here every week and say, this week we need this much money. Pay up. And you guys would just do it. What a way to live. But the way that we have operated here at GCA is by the standards that I find in chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians. So this chapter really means a lot to me. And we're going to talk about the implications of Paul's theology of giving this morning. Thus endeth the introduction. See, I did pretty good. Ah. For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. You should know by now, Paul is taking up a collection for the poor saints at Jerusalem. He has told the churches in Macedonia and the churches in Achaia, he has told them that he is going to go to Jerusalem to take their offering and Macedonia and the Corinthians have very specifically said that they were going to raise a gift of charity and liberality. And so now Paul is encouraging them to not only say they were going to do that, but to actually do it, to follow through with it. And so that's what he's beginning to say at the beginning of chapter 9. For to me to write to you about this ministry, this ministry to the saints in Jerusalem, this distribution of money that I've collected from you that I'm going to take to Jerusalem. Why? Because, verse 2, I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely, that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, that, as I was saying, you might be prepared. So he's sending a contingency ahead of himself so that when he gets there, they don't have to do any collecting. He sent the brethren ahead to actually do the collection so that when Paul gets there, he just simply receives the gift and he can go on his way to Jerusalem with the men who have been assigned to travel with him so that there's great accountability for the money. But I have sent the brethren that are boasting about you may not be made empty in this case. That as I was saying, you may be prepared. Lest if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, not to speak of you, but they and you 
should be put to shame by this confidence that I have in you. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead of you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift that the same might be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. That's exactly where we ended last week and where I told you we would pick up this morning. Now, that verse, verse 6, taken from its context, has led to all kinds of errant theology. Anybody who's come out of the name it, claim it, or word of faith group knows that that is a favorite verse of theirs. That if you give, if you sow sparingly, then you're going to reap sparingly. But if you sow bountifully, then you're going to get bountifully. And what they do is they turn Paul's intention upside down. And what they say is, if you want to reap bountifully... If you want to get more and more, well, then you give bountifully. In other words, you're giving to get. The scheme, according to them, is that you give money to them personally or to their ministry, and that is going to get you a bountiful gift. That's not what Paul is saying. In fact, it's going to be good if we just skip down a little bit here. Go down to verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. What you have to understand about gracious giving is that it's not primarily about money. It is about bringing an overflowing of thanksgiving and praise to God. Because ultimately it's the recognition that God is your supply for everything. Whatever you have, it was given to you by God. And because God has made you a steward of these things, then the giving of those things redounds to God's glory, not to your own glory. Verse 13, because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ. Now listen to what Paul just did. We're going to talk about it more when we get to the verse. But Paul has just said, as part of your obedience to the gospel of Christ, liberality and giving is part of it. Because giving rightly done, get this straight, giving rightly done glorifies God. Because human beings naturally don't give. What does our flesh say? I don't want to. And so we don't. But if you understand that the giving, that the charity, that the kindness, that the helping the poor, taking care of people who have nothing, the support of the gospel, if you understand that that kind of giving not only brings praise and thanksgivings to God by the people who are receiving the gifts, but that it also glorifies God, then that puts it in the category of genuine worship. Look, the word worship, let's break it down for just a minute. The word worship is an old English word. The old English word is worthship. We have just contracted it in the English language to worship. But the old English word meant these are the things you find worth in. These are the things that you find value in. 
If you're walking through the mall and you see a pair of shoes and you say, I got to have those shoes, there, there were too many husbands looking at their wives at this moment. Wow, that was kind. I thought she was going to hit you. Um, well, then you look at the price and you then do a value check in your own head and you say, is the price worth the shoes? Which is why sales work so well. Because you look at the original price and you think, well, it, it's not quite worth that. But look, it's on sale. Now it's worth it. Okay, well, you're, you're actually determining value at that point, And then you're spending your money on it because it has value to you. Okay, the glory of God, thanksgiving to God, the people who have nothing praising God for your generosity, does that have value to you? Does that have actual worth? And if it does, then you are practicing worthship. You have determined that this is worth it. Your average person, and you'll pardon me saying this, the average person in an average week will spend more on their lunches than they spend on charity, on giving. It's just a fact. People have a tendency to buy the things they want, to buy the car, the shoes, the clothes, the shirts, the suits, the dresses that they want, the furniture, the knickknacks. I've got to make my house look good, the pictures, the things. They'll spend money on all that for themselves to make their environment better for them, and then they tip God on the way out. It's funny how many of you just nodded at me when I said that. Do you think God can't figure it out if you figured it out? If you just agreed with that, God knows you agree with that. And so Paul is saying that this is the proof given by this ministry to the saints. And because of that, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel. Now look at the last line. And for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. So it is a demonstration of the grace of God in you that causes this kind of charity and this kind of liberality. And because of that, Paul is then going to argue that God, who gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater, God who's in charge of everything you have and everything he's given you, is giving you these things for the express purpose of allowing you greater liberality. He is not giving you these things or greater things so that you can spend it on yourself. And that's the error of the name it, claim it theology or any theology that says you give to get. Paul's argument is you give to glorify God. And then God, who is glorified in the giving, will give you more so you can give. And he will keep the cycle of giving going. Because he knows what you have, he knows what you give, and he knows whether or not he can trust you with what is his. And he will keep giving to you as you keep giving. I've seen it time and time again, and I don't want to make some kind of formula out of it. But I have seen people go from struggling month to month, 
to just being generous givers, and then suddenly they say, oh, I can't believe what just happened. Suddenly I got a new job, or I got a raise, or I got something I didn't expect, or an inheritance from an uncle I didn't even know I had. Or I, because God knows the people that he has assigned to this type of charity. And the money flows through those kinds of people. So understand that when Paul says, now this I say, verse 6, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully, he's saying that to people who have already said that they are going to make up a bountiful liberal gift. So Paul is responding to their gift by promising them that God will continue to provide for them. What he is not saying is, if you all give, then God's going to give you. If you all give, then you're going to get even richer. And you can just heap it on your flesh and you can get yourself more stuff. You can get yourself a luxury deluxe camel to ride around on. There were no cars back then, so I couldn't think of an equation. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I'm going to start at the end of that verse because this verse was vital to me because I lived under years and years and years of oppressive giving theology. This verse says, first off, God loves a cheerful giver. It is the Greek word hilaros. It is the word from which we get hilarious. But it is the word that means cheerful, to be happy, to be joyful for the opportunity, to be joyful that you are bringing praise and glory to God, to be joyful for the fact that you are helping people in need and that you are advancing the gospel of Christ, to be joyful in your giving. Look, if you begrudge any check that you put in that box... Don't put it in the box. And I mean that. If you write a check or have some cash that you intend to give, and when it comes time for you to give it, you do it grudgingly, don't do it. Don't give it. We don't want unhappy money. <laughs> because ultimately, it's not about the money. It's about you as a Christian learning how to grow in your Christianity. It's about you learning the grace of God properly. It's never about the dollars and cents. It's about the grace of God being exhibited in his people. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament where you will find God eulogizing a certain type of person. Nowhere else will you find God loves hard workers. You won't find God loves people who pray four times a day. You won't find anything that says God loves a particular kind of Christian more than other kinds of Christians. This is the only place in the New Testament that you're told the kind of person God loves. And it's in the context of giving. And whether you like that idea or not, it's a fact. God loves cheerful Giving, okay, so people say to me, uh, I want to please God. I want to be pleasing to my Father. How do I do that? That verse right there tells you how. God loves a cheerful giver. And then people will say, 
Yeah, but other than that, what else you got? Is there another alternative? Maybe if I spend a lot of time with my face in the dirt, will that get me off the giving thing? No, it's just a simple fact that God loves cheerful giving. Now, this verse also says, and this is vitally, vitally important, and I'm going to talk about tithing for the next 10, 15 minutes. Those of you who are familiar with this teaching, talk amongst yourselves. But this needs to be said again because this is the verse that most effectively demonstrates that Old Testament tithing is not carried into the New Testament. Despite the fact that there are Christian churches today, one right up the road, you can go right up the road where they advertise giving without the effort, where they have access to your checking account, and where every month they will take out 10% of your income, giving without the effort. So anyway, if you want a church that makes you tithe, that takes 10% of everything you make, which, by the way, that's not something you're giving, sacrificing, showing God how much you love him. That is the church just extorting money from you. But I'm not real strong on this topic, so it's okay. I don't have a chip on my shoulder about this or anything. In the Old Testament, there were tithes three of them. There was not a tithe. If you only gave 10% in the Old Testament, you still weren't tithing. You had to tithe 10%, and then you had to tithe another 10% off that 90%, and then you had to tithe another 10% every third year off the, what is it, 81, 82% that you had left. So there were three tithes every year that were required in the law from all the children of Israel. The tithes were for very specific purposes. The tithes of grain were taken into the storehouse for the widows, for the fatherless, for the priests, so that nobody would have any lack. The other tithes went to the support of the temple and the priesthood and the Levites because the Levites didn't get a land share when God parceled out the land when they were taken into the land of Canaan. As a consequence, the other 11 tribes had to support the Levite tribe. And that's where that first tithe went. In other words, understand what the tithe was. It was a tax on Israel for the purpose of supporting the national religion. And then the widows and the fatherless and any of the priests that were away from the temple. And so the tithe was a very specific I've called it a tax once. I might as well again. It's a very specific tax that God laid on the children of Israel for the purpose of the support of his instituted system. Now, that instituted system that was being supported by the tithes doesn't exist in the New Testament or the New Covenant. does not exist. In fact, you read the book of Hebrews, and it tells you that the animal sacrifices and the Aaronic priesthood and the temple worship, that that's all over. Christ is the fulfillment of all that. All those animals that could not ultimately take away sin, Christ by his one sacrifice satisfied all that. He took away sin once and for all, perfecting forever those that he sanctified. That's the writer of Hebrews. So all those animal sacrifices done, all those priests and high priests, all foreshadowed Christ to come. Once Christ is here, you don't need that priesthood anymore. Okay, so then do you still need the tax to support it? No. No. Now, here's the important point and why this verse is so important. 
Nowhere in the New Testament are New Covenant Christians told to tithe. Sometimes people are surprised by that. But it doesn't say it anywhere. Now what preachers will do, which I think is a rather nefarious thing to do, is that they will take the conversation that Jesus had with the Pharisees in which he called them whitewashed sepulchers and in the midst of his condemnation he says to them you tithe meticulously your mint and your cumin and all your spices and he says but you, but you, you don't understand the weightier matters of the law mercy, judgment and he says this you should have done while not leaving the other undone and they will take that verse where Jesus is condemning Pharisees and they will apply it to the church and say, when it comes to tithing, Jesus said, this you ought to do. Right? Yep. How often did we hear that? Over and over. over and over and over. So that way they can import tithing teaching into the New Testament somewhere. Well, of course, it's Jesus under the Old Covenant prior to going to the cross talking to the Pharisees who he is condemning, which Pharisees actually were under the tithing law. And so, yes, the Pharisees should have tithed. But when you get to the New Covenant church, not a word about tithing. Not a word. Now, understand that a tithe was not something that you determined to do in your heart. It was not up to you. There was no choice. There was no decision. You had to pay your tithes if you were under the Old Covenant. So how does Paul get away with saying, every man according as he purposes in his heart, let him give? Well, I had one correspondent who sent me an email who said, you misunderstand New Testament tithing. He said, uh, the reason Paul said, every man as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, was because he knew that the church was already tithing, and because the church was already tithing, then above and beyond the tithes, then they could give an offering. Because even in the Old Testament, once you had given all your tithes and all your sacrifices and your sin offerings and your requirements and your grain offerings and your drink offerings, after all that, if you still wanted to give more, you could give a votive offering. And so my correspondent said, that's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the votive offering because he knew that the church was already tithing. To which I wrote back and said, one verse, tell me one verse where Paul ever taught the Gentiles to tithe. Because they wouldn't be doing it naturally. They wouldn't be doing it automatically. They're not Jews. They don't know anything about that tax. They know nothing about tithing. So unless you can find something in the New Testament that specifically says that Paul was teaching the church to tithe, then you can't just assume that Gentiles who had no history of tithing just magically started tithing. Because what does your flesh always say? I don't want to. So there's no way that that's happening. And if it were happening, we'd have to see evidence. There would have to be evidence in the New Testament of something that Paul ever said or taught the church about tithing. No, instead what Paul was teaching was the very antithesis of systematic legalistic tithing. And he said, let every man as he purposes in his heart, so let him give. Now, here's the principle. I said all that to say this. 
it is a really scary thing to tell people there's no more law against you there's no more law Paul says it there's no law against me everything's legal to me not everything is expedient but there is no law against me okay that would be a really scary principle to start telling people at random willy-nilly telling everybody hey there's no more law against you because people are gonna go crazy then people are gonna go do whatever they want to do and they're gonna end up doing some pretty offensive things but if the grace of God is true and if the Holy Spirit of God is true then the Holy Spirit of God works as a governor on your behavior and the grace of God makes you most naturally want to do the things that please God so you can only say there is no law against you to blood-bought spirit-filled Christians because those are the people you can take the law away from and then expect that their behavior is going to improve as a result of not being under the law okay same principle here exact same principle the reason that Paul could say every man according as he purposes in his heart is because he knows that the Spirit of God that is alive and well in those people is going to adequately induce their hearts to be generous and give again what the law cannot do make people cheerfully give the grace of God can do and does do so Paul says let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart not grudgingly or under compulsion was the tithe compulsory yes, yes. yeah absolutely have you ever been in a church that treated giving like it was compulsory there are churches out there there are whole denominations out there there are whole offshoots of Christianity out there I won't name any but their their initials are like JW and go ahead figure that one out go ahead in my my family my extended family there were Mormons and they had to file their taxes you know their, their 1040 whatever it was they had to file that with the church every year so that the church could compare how much money they made versus how much money they gave and if they didn't give at least 10 percent of their money then they had to either pay up or get out compulsory giving Paul's very specific to say not under compulsion and don't do it grudgingly if you don't feel good about giving don't give because your heart's not in a good place about it wait until your heart is in a good place about it until you're joyful about it until you understand that the grace of God working through you is not only bringing thanksgiving to God but it is resulting in people who have a need praying for you and thanking God for you all of which redounds to God's glory and praise which is the reason that he's going to give you more so that you can continue that cycle that brings praise and glory to him that's genuine biblical giving and it's not about money it's about bringing glory to God as we saw last week it's not about money because Jesus saw the woman give her two mites and he said she gave more than everybody so it's not about amounts Paul said that it's not according to what you don't have 
but according to what you do have that you should give. So again, it's not about amounts. If you don't have much, well, then God knows that and he understands if you don't give much in monetary value. But if you're giving sacrificially, God is being glorified in the act that you're doing because he knows how little you have. Am I alone up here? Do you get what I'm saying? Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you This word grace, charis, just keeps coming up in these two chapters because he keeps wanting you to make the relationship between giving and grace. That it's the gracious ministry of God. It is the grace of giving. It's the grace of God working through you that's producing the giving. He wants you to see that this is not a mandatory thing. It's not that something that God is sitting in judgment over you on. It is something that God is graciously moving through you about. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. That always having all sufficiency in everything. Now hold on to the last verse here. The last part of this verse is going to answer the question of whether you're giving to get or whether you're giving for God's glory. And whether when Paul said, if you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. Was he talking about giving to get so that you can heap it back onto your flesh so that you can get richer and more impressive and have more political influence? Is that what he was talking about? No. Look at the end of verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for what? For every good deed. So why is God giving you an abundance? To keep the good deeds going. He sees that you've got that charitable giving spirit. And so he's going to supply for all your needs. So that you can keep doing the good works. Because remember I keep saying it and saying it and saying it. Now I'm going to say it again. God is in the enterprise of glorifying himself. And he glorifies himself through his people by inspiring praise from his people, by inspiring worship from his people, by inspiring charity from his people. This is the way that God provides for people. If there's somebody in this room right now that has a financial need, how are we going to solve that? How is God going to solve that? Well, when Jesus was around his disciples, he could say, just go catch a fish and there will be money in the fish's mouth. But since he's not here to tell us to go catch fish, the most common way that God provides for his people is through his people. So if somebody has a need, God works through us, through our hearts, through our bank accounts in order to supply that need that that person has. Because as Paul said, he's not wanting to cause anybody to come up lacking. He's just looking for charity and equity within the church. If you look at the earliest church in the book of Acts, they brought everything they had and laid it at the feet of the apostles who then made a distribution to the church so that everybody had plenty. And yet, when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the apostles about how much they had sold their land for, did you ever take a look at what Peter said? He said, when you had the land and the price of the land, 
was yours. It was your. Why did you feel the necessity to lie and try to make out like you really sold it for less than you sold it for so that you could hold back a little bit? He wasn't upset about the monetary end of it. He was upset about the lying because he said it was yours to begin with. You could do whatever you wanted with it. It's yours. So you can do what you want with what's yours. God has given you these things. Enjoy them. Thank him for it. Enjoy the life that he's allowed you to live. If you always walk on carpet and your air is always air conditioned, good for you. Because there are a lot of people on the planet who don't have that kind of luxury. We don't think of it as luxury anymore. We think of it as just standard day-to-day -day life. But if God has allowed you to live like that, enjoy it. But recognize that since it's God who has given you all that, he expects you to also be gracious and be kind and be generous with those who have less than you. So Paul could say, he is able to make all grace abound to you that always having all sufficiency in everything. Wouldn't you love to have all sufficiency in everything? Whatever it is, name a thing, all sufficiency. Now, I, I think I could argue that the vast majority of us Americans and the vast majority of the people sitting in this room pretty much has sufficiency. We're very, very, very fortunate. We've just gotten so used to our level of fortunateness that if our fortunateness, I'm going to keep using that word until it becomes a word, that our fortunateness, if it decreases somewhat, we feel put upon. If the air conditioner breaks, you know, we're like, why me, God? You know, it's, I'm so put upon. We've just gotten used to a standard of living. But I think we could argue that we have been very, very blessed people. And if you just take a look at what you have and what you wear and the, the many, many choices of what to wear day to day, and that you don't have to get up every day and begin your day with fine food. Okay, that is something I'm having to do right now. But every day in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, your day began with fine food. That was an essential. We've got refrigerators full of food and cupboards full of food, and we can go to drive throughs and we can, we've got food. We've got clothes. We've got cars. We've got homes. So we're very, very, very fortunate, and I think I can argue that Paul is saying, look, God's done his part. God has already given you a standard of living that is far beyond the standard of living on the vast majority of the rest of the planet. You are in the upper, upper percentile of people who are comfortable on the planet right now. And God has done that for you through his grace, through his kindness. And he expects then that having done that for you, you're going to be charitable people. And being charitable people, he's going to keep supplying for you. Here Paul's going to say it even stronger. God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have abundance for every good deed, as it is written. He jumps back to the Psalms for this verse. He scattered abroad, he gave to the poor. His righteousness abides forever. So Paul has just taken it from the Psalms and said, 
It is God who takes care of the poor and who scatters abroad. It's God who gives the rain. It's God who gives the seed. It's God who creates the bread. It's God who takes care of, of everybody. And then he says he does it because his righteousness abides forever. So God's supplying for his people through his people is a demonstration of the righteousness of God. David wrote, in the Psalms, he said, I'm old and I have been young, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken or the seed begging bread. Why? Because God in his righteousness supplies for his people. And the way he supplies for his people is through his people, who he graciously endows with the gift of giving and then gives them the supply to give. And that is the cycle that brings glory to God. Verse 10, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread to the eater is the King James. Bread for food is the NASB. He will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Okay, Paul just yanked that verse out of the Psalms about the righteousness of God. And then as you're a giving person, he says God is going to continue to supply for you so that you can continue giving. And what's he going to do? He's going to increase the harvest of your money. He's going to increase the harvest of your cars. He's going to increase the harvest of your righteousness. Because again, Giving is about teaching you the grace of God, the spirit of God, and how to live the Christian life to the glory of God, by the grace of God, resulting in your own righteousness. That's Paul's theology of giving. And it has nothing to do with tithing. And it has nothing to do with compulsion. And it has nothing to do with crushing debt and budgets by churches. It has nothing to do with how, I'm going to pick an arbitrary number here and say 95% of all churches, certainly all the churches I've been in prior to GCA, it has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with how they raise money. Has anybody here ever seen the marathon fundraising giving things that churches do? Yeah, sure. Anybody ever gotten a letter in the mail? We're going to go off in your city if you don't send some money right now. That's compulsion. That's wrong. That's not grace giving. That's not biblical giving. And it doesn't result, very, very importantly, it doesn't result in God getting the glory and your righteousness being increased. It's kind of like spending your money on a product and then not getting the product. I see those signs all the time when I walk through stores that say, BOGO. I get that? Buy one, get one. And I always say to my daughter, well, if you buy one, you should get one. That makes sense to me. The sign should say buy one, get one free, if that's what they mean. But if you buy one, you should get one. It would be like buying one and not getting anything. If you're giving under compulsion, if you're giving because the church is pressuring you, if you're giving because you're trying to satisfy some arbitrary budget, if you're giving under pressure or under guilt, then you're buying something you're not getting because you're not getting the praise and the glory to God and you're not getting the grace of God flowing through you and you're not giving the result of thanksgiving 
from other people who are praying for you and thanking God for the gift that they've received through your abundance. And it's not increasing your righteousness. You're getting nothing. You're being cheated. You're being hoodwinked. Your pocket's being picked. But be honest. How many of you would like to be free to give for the rest of your life? The same way that you're free from the law, oh, happy condition. The same way that the law, and I I talk about this a lot, can never give you the freedom to have genuine decision-making ability because you don't have the ability to do anything other than what the law dictates. But grace gives you not only the ability to do righteousness, it also gives you the ability to say no, an ability you never had before. You never used to be able to say no to those things that restricted you, those things that you were slave to. You didn't have the ability to say no to them. They owned you. And the grace of God gives you the ability to say no to those things that would restrict and bind you. Well, the same thing. The law can't make you gracious givers. Compulsion cannot make you gracious givers. Churches putting pressure and guilt on you cannot make you gracious givers. But the new covenant by grace can do the very thing the law couldn't do, which is make you understand that your giving redounds to the glory of God, and therefore you give most joyfully, and God loves a cheerful giver. Do you see the big picture? Am I alone up here? No. Because let me tell you something. This could be the, the lack of sugar and carbohydrates talking, but... But I wish somebody had told me this when I was young. Because I went through a whole lot of years of oppressive giving in order to try to please God. And not only can you not obligate or please God by your works, but you certainly can't do it by giving him enough money because he owns it all anyway. The cattle on a thousand hills are the Lord's. You think he's impressed with your hundred bucks? He's not impressed. God, to be God, who owns everything, God has no needs. So you are not satisfying his needs. You don't have to give to God to improve God. You have to give to God to improve you. You have to learn how to give so that you can have a well-rounded, fully-orbed Christianity. And I just wish for all the world that somebody would have told me that when I was a young man because now after all these years and finally finding out what the Bible says now finally for the first time I have genuine freedom and I wish I had been freed years ago but the preachers I was under were so determined to keep me bound and shackled that I never felt free You will be enriched in everything for all liberality. Notice verse 11. You will be enriched. God is going to enrich you. How? Verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread to the eater will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness and you will be enriched in everything for what purpose? For all liberality, it comes back to that. God is going to enrich you in everything so that you can be generous. 
which through us is producing, which through us, through us taking this gift, this gift that you have assembled that I'm taking to Jerusalem, what is it going to result in? Notice what it results in. According to Paul, it results in thanksgiving to God, the glorifying of God, not the glorifying of the giver, because it's God who gives both the seed to the sower and the bread to the eater. It's God who supplies all your needs. It's God who makes sure that you have plenty for your liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service, collecting the money and taking it to Jerusalem to the poor saints, the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Okay, big picture again. Why is God laying it on the hearts of both the people of Macedonia and Achaia to give a gift to Paul so that Paul can take it to the poor saints at Jerusalem? Is it just so that they'll have something to eat? Is it just so they'll have some change in their pocket? No, the end result from God's point of view is by doing it, it's going to bring praise and thanksgiving to himself. He's in charge of this process. And so Paul recognizes that it's God who is supplying, it's God who's causing them liberality, it's God who's giving them grace, it's God who is encouraging this service, the end result being the increase of righteousness to them and the increase and overflowing of thanksgiving to God. That's biblical giving. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ. As I mentioned earlier, when we hit this verse, notice how intertwined this kind of liberality and generosity is in Paul's mind to genuine gospel Christianity. He sees the giving as a demonstration of the fact that these are people who are sold out to Christ and for Christ's sake and for God's glory are willing to give of their own so that there's more thanksgiving to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them And to all, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, okay, now here's the extra benefit. The extra benefit is the people who get helped, they then pray for you. I have people write to me all the time and say, pray for me. I need prayer. Pray for me. One of the things that people want most, Christian people want most, they want to know that you're praying for them. And Paul says, by giving liberally to this church in Jerusalem, they are going to pray for you. Again, it is the full cycle of God's grace, working through God's people, producing God's glory, bringing thanksgiving to God, bringing prayers to God, and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you. Because, why? Because of the surpassing grace of God in you. We've had people show up here just hungry, 
just hungry. We have a food pantry in the back, which I'm very happy for, which could probably use a little more supply at this point because we've given away a lot of food. But I'm happy to give it to them because they know, whether they know God or not, whether they know Christ or not, they know that a church that professes Jesus Christ gave them food when they were starving. They know that a church that is living out its Christianity is is who helped them. And so the praise, the glory, ends up back with God. And that's exactly the kind of giving Paul's talking about, the kind of liberality that he's talking about. Because they, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God that's in you. So how does he wrap it up? Verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. What's the indescribable gift? The grace of God that is demonstrated through the giving of God's people, which redounds to the thanksgiving to God by the people who receive the gift, which redounds to the glory of God in the fact that they're praying to God, and so God will liberally give to you so that you can continue the cycle of liberally giving, all of which redounds to the praise of God. That's New Testament giving. That's New covenant giving. Now you don't have to read the book. I just saved you all the trouble of actually reading. But do you understand what Paul is getting at? He is giving you freedom because everything in Christianity redounds to your freedom. And the grace of God and the kindness of God and the love of God that redounds through God's people into love and charity to other people. This is all about God. This is God's enterprise. This is God's church. And if God is working through you to accomplish the praise and glory of God, say thank you. And then happily, joyfully engage in the grace of giving. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's strictly biblical, and I've never heard it in any other church till I got here and I said it. I'm being honest because I kept looking at this and going, why are people saying this? Now, I'm sure there are other preachers, and I'm sure there are other books, and I'm sure there are other things that do say this. I just wasn't aware of them. So I sussed it out for myself by going back to the Word of God, standing on the Word of God, and saying, I will live by these standards, not made up church standards. Questions? No questions? I was that clear? You were pretty clear. I was pretty (laughs) Fairly adamant, too, I know. You have (laughs) stickers. Oh, please. Please, I beg you. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.